0: So, welcome to another episode of Micro Philosophy with me, Julian Bergini. This series takes as its theme the title of my new book, How to Think Like a Philosopher, and our format is a simple one. Each of my guests is going to propose one thing to do or avoid in order to think well, which we'll then all discuss, and if there's time, I'll make a suggestion of my own. So let me introduce my two guests today. Leah Carmanson is an Associate Professor and the Bhagwan Adinath Professor of Jane Studies at the University of North Texas. Her books include Cross-Cultural Existentialism and, co-authored with Monica Kilosgard steinback A Practical Guide to World Philosophies. Welcome, Leia. Thank you. Nilanjan Das is Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Toronto. His work in Theory of Knowledge concerns the connections between self-knowledge and rationality, while his work in Sanskrit philosophy focuses on debates between Buddhist and Brahmanical thinkers about the nature of the self, knowledge, and self-knowledge. Welcome, Nilanjan. Thank you. Okay, so we're going to crack off. Let's start off with with Leia. So tell us what it is that you think we should be thinking about if you want to think better.
1: This is a great topic, and thanks for for having me. So I I became interested in this, oddly enough, after returning to the Greeks from a long time of not really reading much about uh, Greek philosophers, and I was reading the work of Pierre Hadot, uh, who talks about philosophy and contemplative practices and what he calls the... Spiritual exercises that used to be part of Greek philosophical practice. So that got me thinking a lot about the role of contemplative practice, the role of a kind of mindfulness training, both in philosophy in terms of, like you say, how to think well or, or things that enable us to think well, but also really as a kind of a philosophical methodology in its own right, that that part of what you can think is actually enabled by the contemplative practice. And of course, that's true for many of the other traditions in which I work, Buddhist philosophy, jain philosophy, uh, Chinese philosophies. But my my sort of thinking about this as a contemporary uh, methodology within sort of the academic discipline of philosophy today was inspired by Hado's work.
0: So, I mean, people who are come to philosophy through the Western tradition will sort of hear the phrase contemplative, contemplative practices and, like me, not even be able to say it, let alone understand it. So what sort of practices are we talking about here?
1: You know, and they, they look surprisingly similar across um, sort of what we could call the Indo-Greek world and, and Chinese practices as well. Uh, sitting uh, still, uh, sitting quietly and breathing, you know, some sort of, of meditation technique um, and sometimes some sort of movement uh, meditations. I'm thinking of sort of like Qigong practices in the Chinese context. They also include practices like memorization, memorizing texts, committing them to memory so that you can contemplate them in sort of calm moments, sort of a stoic insight here, right? Contemplate them in calm moments, but also draw on these philosophical insights in moments that aren't so calm, right? So in the midst of daily life and all the anxieties, you, you still have committed something to memory that serves you, right? Um, and you draw on it because of your, your ability to contemplate it, or you've, you've absorbed it contemplatively, which prepares you to use it in life. Uh, so yeah, me- meditation, memorization, um, and often recitation, right? Which kind of goes hand in hand with, with memorization, almost sort of chanting philosophical texts to yourself. Any Anything that calms the mind, Maybe in the contemporary mindfulness movement, you know, we always talk about it in terms of you know lowering the blood pressure, right? You know, sitting still, being yeah. calm, lowering the blood pressure. But, but I, I am interested in the in the sense that Hado ta- talks about as spiritual exercises, so something that really is aimed at at a transformation beyond just better health and, and and clear thinking and low blood pressure. But generally, any kind of breathing or quiet sitting that puts you in a frame of mind that is calmer more reflective and slower. I think the main thing here, perhaps, is just slowing down so that your reactions don't happen before you've had a chance to reflect on them.
0: So imagine you're, you're, you're trying to persuade someone who's you know, done their, their Western philosophy and they think, okay, um, you know, this sounds nice and I can see why people do it. Lowering blood pressure is a good thing. But as a philosopher, I'm interested in, in thinking well and, and reasoning well. So what's this got to do with with my philosophizing?
1: It's odd. I don't know if I'm going to say anything here that, you know, your average <clears throat> therapist wouldn't say to you, you know, in, in, <laughs> in the chair, uh, which is just that, you know, try to do that when you're agitated, right? It's quite difficult. So I, I think it's it's a very commonplace experience that we do need to be in a calmer, slower frame of mind in order to do our jobs as philosophers. Um, I think we all understand the difficulties of doing our jobs when we're agitated, uh, or stressed or multitasking, um, scattered, right, when our attention is scattered. Uh, and so even if, if I mean, I would think, and, you know, maybe you can, you can sort of imagine what the pushback would be, but I, I have a hard time, you know, imagining what the sort of pushback might be only because it is such a common experience. And it seems almost so commonsensical once you think about it, like, of course, to do my job well, I do need to be in a calm frame of mind.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, I've asked those questions, not because I, I'm sceptical myself, but because I'm just aware that this is un, un, something that's unfamiliar to people. And it seems to me, right. you know, as you say, it's kind of obviously correct. And I, but I think one issue, sometimes philosophers suffer from a slight overconfidence, maybe. And they don't really think that, you know, their frame of mind or their emotional mood is going to interfere with their reasoning, right? They think they're above that because they're professional thinkers. Whereas, actually, you only need to have gone to a few seminars to see, you know, someone is in a bad mood that day. Uh, They're not engaging in the same way as when they're feeling uh, calm and relaxed. Nilanjan, obviously, you know, you've done a lot of work, uh, Sanskrit philosophy. I take it this is all very familiar to the kind of traditions you've uh, worked in.
2: Yes. So one thing that is very interesting about what Leah is saying is the way contemplative practices sort of create a mental state, which is conducive to doing philosophy. But there is also this other approach on which basically contemplative practices is a method of discovery. It's not just a matter of creating a background mental state which is conducive, but in fact it takes helps us take philosophy further. And that is actually much more common, I think, in the traditions I am familiar with, like in both Brahminical thinkers as well as their Buddhist counterparts.
0: Okay, now again, the sort of more Western analytic philosophers are going to get an alarm bell ringing there. They're going to think, "What, what are you suggesting that by getting into certain states of mind we sort of gain... Mystical insight beyond appearances into the true nature of reality. I I think sometimes that is true, but is that always true? Or are there other ways in which this increases your ability to see things well, which perhaps doesn't require any heavy metaphysical baggage?
2: So I think the way these people think about it is that the kind of reasoning that philosophers engage with only gets us to certain truths and, like, expressed in certain ways. But in order to sort of so suppose you think that the nature of ultimate reality, or the way the world really is, is actually something that cannot be perfectly expressed through language or the conceptual frameworks that we have, uh, that we make use of. There, philosophical reasoning, which is always proceeds using concepts and our linguistic resources, only can take you so far. So the rest of the work has to be done actually through other kinds of methods, which are basically these methods of contemplative practices. Now, of course, you need to buy into that view that the nature of reality cannot be expressed through language or concepts. But then there are arguments for why that might not be the case. Like, so one kind of argument would be a kind of an inductive argument that you sort of try to express what the world really is like through language. Then you come up with this, these different ontological schemes All of them are incoherent, the ones that we come up with. That gives you inductive evidence that that actually is not the right way of going about it. So that's one way in which you could say that contemplative practices can take us further.
0: Okay, so that's interesting. So so one thing you're suggesting there is this isn't, as it were, necessarily premised in a rejection of rational method. Actually, rational philosophy can lead you to the point where you think there's more than can be said in language, and therefore you require other things. That's interesting. I'm interested as well how this perhaps relates to things around perhaps, you know, e- ethical truth, for example, because, you know, analytic philosophy struggles a bit in a sense because it, mainstream opinion seems to be oscillating on this. But there's a long tradition of not really being able to understand, you know, ethics as being about objective truths out there. It's got to be something else. And I'm wondering whether our ability to kind of like get into the right frame of mind to attend to others and their nature and so forth is actually an important part of, of ethics and it can't be left to just rationalizing principles.
1: Well, you know, what Neil and John just said is absolutely sort of took the words out of my mouth. I, that The idea that, that rationality is a kind of a baseline minimum, I think, in a lot of the, the Asian traditions that, that we're talking about. And, you know, it, it's necessary to sort of start uh, the path, as it were. Um, so there is there is definitely a sense in which contemplative practice and what we might consider logical, you know, sort of logical, rational thinking go hand in hand. They work together and they supplement each other along the way. Um, so I do think that's very important. And yeah, I mean, on on the 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 point regarding ethics. That's an interesting question because, it, it, you know, you do wonder about philosophers who, whose areas of specialization are sort of in morals and you, you want to know about their personal ethics or their personal morals, right? Do they sort of walk the walk, as it were? And so I do think that is one of the areas of philosophy where our theories and our practices start to come together in important ways. And it's unavoidable at a certain point that those two things remain separate. I think when we start doing or, or thinking about ethics um, and thinking about how to live well and how to, to treat others well. Uh, I don't know, John. What do, what do you think about the, the ethics question?
2: Yeah, so I actually was reminded while uh, Julian was asking that question of uh, this Buddhist thinker, which people might be familiar with, called Shantideva, who lived uh, from the late seventh century to the mid eighth century CE. So, one thing that like these later Mahayana Buddhist thinkers are really interested in, that the role of philosophy for them is to actually achieve a certain kind of moral perfection. So where they become these morally ideal agents called bodhisattvas, who essentially delay their own liberation on their own freedom from suffering to free everyone else from suffering. And one thing that Shantideva does is that he mixes together. So he has this excellent text called Uh, the introduction to the practices of the Bodhisattva called Bodhicaryavatara. And what it does is that there we see that combination of both meditative practices and rational thinking in the service of achieving a moral ideal. So basically, Shantideva gives you arguments which are supposed to rationally undermine harmful attitudes. For example, reactive attitudes like anger towards others. And at the same time, he asks us to meditate in certain ways on the self-other distinction. So through that kind of meditation, we can sort of either invert those distinctions or get rid of those distinctions and genuinely become altruistic. So I think, again, like both of those features, like both of those approaches, rational thinking and contemplation go hand in hand in these sorts of ethical or moral texts.
0: A couple of things just to pick up on there. I mean, one is that I think that what both of you have said has been a helpful uh, corrective. I think a lot of people, when they think about in a fairly uninformed way the differences between dominant Western philosophies and non-Western philosophies, they think it's about uh, there are sort of these sort of binary distinctions, right? So embracing practices like meditation rather than reasoning, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But it seems to me, you know, in, in East Asian philosophy and South Asian philosophy. And probably elsewhere, I think from the, from the other side, it looks rather it's not about that it's about there are more tools in the toolkit, as it were, so it's like reason and rationality are absolutely parts of the tools, but other ways of knowing are also seen as legitimate, whereas in the Western tradition, we've kind of you know the consensus is that really all those other ways of knowing are are, are dodgy, and we've got to reduce it to to reason and evidence. Do you think that's a fair summary?
1: well, and i, I think to, to to maybe supplement that summary, we would add that 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 itself is a relatively recent turn in the history of Western philosophy, and that's where Hado was so inspiring to me because it really made me dig back in uh, to that tradition and and there's a few books out too um called Philosophy as a way of life that that are obviously recalling the earlier haddo book with that title and and one of them. Uh, I'm forgetting the name of the author, it's out with the Bloomsbury series on this topic, gives a fantastic history of this idea as it goes through the medieval period, as it comes into the Enlightenment and afterward, how people dealt with this question of the practices that the Greeks employed, what those practices might mean for them in their own sort of contemporary time periods, uh, right up until the present, you know, and so again, this notion that that we, we can or should reduce everything to a sort of a formal claim, right? A formal deductive claim or a formal analysis is relatively recent. It's a relatively recent term.
0: This kind of idea of contemplative practices getting the right frame of mind, it's at least suggestive to me of the idea that the philosophical practice is always has some kind of ethical dimension, right? And that therefore it's important to be in the right frame of mind to do it because you don't want to be doing it with bad intentions you don't want to be doing it in the spirit of i want to win rather than i want to get to the truth and so forth do you think that's part of it nilanjan
2: actually yes yeah, so that is very interesting right so um, so for example in the history of sanskrit philosophy the nyaya thinkers for instance distinguish three different ways of engaging in debate so one is one kind of debate is truth directed the second kind of direct- debate is victory directed and the third kind of direct uh, debate is just destructive. It involves demolishing the other person's position. And it's the second, the distinction between the first and the second one that is particularly interesting because the thought is truth-directed debate or truth-directed inquiry is supposed to be not motivated by what they would say call passion or attachment to a position. So the idea is that victory-directed debate always arises when the two sides are attached to their position, maybe because of some emotional reason. That is why they are only interested in winning and not discovering the truth, which might be contrary to the view that they're attached to. Now, one thing that the Nyayev thinkers don't really talk about, which Leah is pointing us towards, is this idea that what are the preconditions of these different kinds of inquiry? And the thought might be that contemplative practices might be important, Because they allow us to engage in one kind of inquiry rather than the other kind of inquiry. So this is actually, there are suggestive hints, for instance, in Vatsayana's commentary on the Nyaya Sutra, where he seems to be saying that, look, only if you are kind of, are in the mindset where you're disengaged from your sort of other practical interests, and you're really interested in discovering the truth, only then can you engage in truth-directed debate, which he calls vada.
1: Right. That's a fantastic point, because how how do you know when you're truth motivated or victory motivated, right, unless you're doing some sort of self-reflection or some sort of contemplative work to be able to identify your own biases, your own emotional reactions, your own inclinations, um, and to sort of have a, a, a rein on those. So there's a sense in which we're still talking about reining in the emotions, uh, which also is, I think, a very sort of topic Uh, central to the Western tradition as well. But we also are are talking about reigning in the emotions here. And that's especially true. I'm thinking here of of East Asian traditions, of Chinese philosophies, that reigning in the emotions and and finding balance there uh, is necessary if you intend to be truth-directed in any way.
0: Yeah, this is very interesting. I I, I can't remember the, the Sanskrit terms for those three types of debate. And I know they're translated in different ways, but I really liked some sort of translations I came along where the two sort of negative ones were translated as wrangling and cavilling. I think they're just lovely old-fashioned words. (laughs) Um, As usual, I always reach about this point in the discussion where I've gone over the time I wanted to spend in the first uh, section because it's become so interesting. So we must now um, shift on. So Nilanjan, could you put something on the table for us to think about in order to... Uh, help our thinking?
2: Actually, we are at a, a nice transition because the method I am interested in is closely tied not to just solitary inquiry, but rather to sort of context of debate and reasoned discourse. So I am interested in this method that philosophers often pursue, which one way of describing it is burden shifting, shifting the burden of proof. So it involves claiming are saying that one does not have the responsibility of proving a claim that one has made earlier in the debate. So just to give you some examples of this, to give you a sense of the phenomenon I'm talking about, suppose the realist, someone who thinks that there is an external world, says there is an external world. And the skeptic says, how do you know? Or suppose a Brahmanical or Hindu thinker says, well, there is a substantial self that is distinct from the body, and so on. And the Buddhist says, how do you know? Now, one response to the how do you know question is to say that actually, I have no burden of proving this claim. So the realist can say, well, unless the skeptic offers reasons to doubt that there is an external world, positive reasons, they don't need to offer a proof for the external world. Similarly, the Brahmanical thinker could point out that, look, the self does appear to us in our internal mental states. For instance, when I remember what happened yesterday or like five years ago, as I'm remembering, it seems to me that the I who remembers is the I who underwent that original experience. And unless the Buddhist gives us reasons to think otherwise, we don't have to offer any proof for the existence of a self that has persisted through time, despite all other changes in mental states and the body. So the idea is that we are going to resist the how do you know questions by just saying, well, I'm not going to give you any proof unless you ever give me a reason to doubt the claim.
0: Okay, that sounds neat. I mean, how do we determine where the burden of proof genuinely is? Because I guess, you know, uh, on if you've got two sides of a debate, both sides could turn around and say, well, it's the, the burden of proof isn't on me, it's for, for you to prove it, right? So conspiracy theorists against the non-conspiracy theorists, you know. We would say, look, conspiracies are unlikely, they require more explanation. The burden of proof is for you to show it's right. The conspiracy theorists might turn around and say, well, no, the burden of you is to show why we should have so much faith in this official narrative when we, we know that official narratives are often bogus. So uh, are there any principles for us determining... On who the burden of proof actually rests rather than on who we want it to rest?
2: <laughs> yeah, so that's a great question. And this is actually where philosophers, both contemporary philosophers and uh, ancient philosophers that I'm familiar with, they seem to disagree on that question quite heavily. So, but I think there are some general generalizations that we can make. So, one kind of view that i think is quite common in sanskrit philosophy at least and it is sort of like explicitly defended by some philosophers is that the kinds of beliefs for which we don't have faced this burden of proof have to be intersubjectively shared beliefs for example the belief that there is an external world is an example of that because it is kind of part of common sense so to speak that there is an external world similarly In the case of the self, the thought is, well, we all experience that phenomenon where it seems to us that I am, for example, we are the same self that underwent the same experience before. Now, the idea is that we are going to use these common patterns of experience or belief and then take those to be the starting points in our inquiry and not question them further. But, in the case of conspiracy theorists, obviously, there is already disagreement there These are not intersubjectively shared beliefs, so these cannot be starting points of inquiry so that is the I think that is where the difference lies.
0: It is interesting. I imagine a fruitful debate about trying to establish where burden of proof is. I think you think about around religious beliefs, for example i think uh, i'm I'm not a religious believer in any way, and I kind of think the burden of proof is definitely on the religious because you know, whatever religion someone believes seems to be contingent upon a certain historical and geographical context and and clearly disagree. So it, it seems to take some sort of special claim to think that your religion is right, whereas it takes no special claim to think that it isn't. But I can imagine a response to that. Um, Leah, what are you making of this burden of proof?
1: I think it's a really interesting and sort of fantastic technique and argumentation, right? And I I couldn't help though, this maybe is a little off topic, of course, I couldn't help but thinking of what the Buddhist responses are, you know, to why why we should question our memories of of who we were in the past and our our sense of continuity, right, of a self over time. And the Buddhist response there is sort of like, well, when I have a memory, what I'm remembering is some sort of a present sensation that I was having at the time, right, not the sort of underlying uh, assumed metaphysical substance, we might say, that is, that is the self. So, of course, that's where my, my mind went when we were talking about shifting the burden there. And I think this, you know, maybe this is a great transition point from the contemplative practice to this topic, because I think there is a sense here in which we have to think deeply about what seems commonsensical to us in order to practice this philosophical methodology of shifting the burden effectively and well right, that we have to be honest with ourselves about what we are directly experiencing. And thinking of this as a a conversation among people and a a sort of a group activity, right, what we are intersubjectively experiencing directly, and what are the metaphysical assumptions that we're bringing to that experience in order to explain it.
0: I mean, I'm wondering whether it sounds like where the burden lies is something which is going to be contingent upon (laughs) where we are, and, and could also be Something which is constantly changing, and um, I, I, I'm about to use the word Bayesian theory, even though I don't really understand it. But the basic principle of Bayesian theory, I think, is that you know, probabilities continually have to get updated on the basis of what knowledge you have. So, I think you know, I'm imagining what you both said is consistent. So, in other words, from Nilanjan's point of view, when the Buddhists came along with this challenge, the burden of proof was on them because. You know, there was wide intersubjective agreement. There was a self. We have an experience of a self. The simplest explanation of that is that there is such a thing and it abides, right? So then the burden of proof is on the Buddhist. But actually, as as Leia says, when the Buddhists present their arguments for it, actually, they're highly persuasive arguments. And and then perhaps the burden of proof then shifts the other way. So given what the Buddhists have said so persuasively, the, the burden of proof is on other people to turn it around. So, I mean, it could be a bit like, you know, a, a game of tennis, Nilandjian. <laughs>
2: Can I push back against that a little bit? Because it seems to me that if you look at the early Buddhist arguments, which are actually presented as arguments, right? They often are arguments from the absence of evidence. So against the self, for instance. So one famous argument that the 4th, 5th century philosopher Vasubandhu gives, it's an argument that basically if there were a self that is distinct from the body and mental states, then either we would perceive it, or would be able to make an inference in favor of it, right? And the claim is, well, we can neither perceive the self nor make inferences about it, so there is no self. So basically, that's a move where he's saying, well, given that there is no positive proof for the existence of the self, either from perception or inference, there is no self. That's a very questionable argument if you thought that, well, the existence of the self or the existence of the external world is something that we have to be able to give positive proof for. So this is also his argument in the 20 verses against the external world, which is basically saying, well, none of the arguments for the external world succeed. So there is no external world. Not immediately obvious that we should be asked to give arguments for the existence of the external world. And it seems to me that there we will Ultimately, in our inquiry, at some point we'll, we'll hit bedrock. Now, obviously, as Julian is pointing out, the bedrock might shift in different contexts, but there will be a bedrock. There will be these starting points that we have to take for granted. And it seems that the the fact that there's an external world might be one of those sorts of like claims that count as bedrock, at least in some debates, some philosophical debates.
1: I think the assumption, like Neil and John says, within the traditions here that we're talking about, yes, is that it's not just sort of a game of tennis, right, back and forth, shifting the burden, but that ultimately we are directed toward, like you say, a bedrock uh, experience or some ground upon which we can then build up.
0: This idea of burden shifting actually was something that um, commercial break time, you know, in, in my Book, How to Think Like a Philosopher. I, I, I'm quoting a lot of interviews with people, and one was with Janet Radcliffe Richards. And she has an interesting idea of this when it comes to ethics. And she thinks in ethics, there's a, there's a clear sort of burden of proof, which is that if there is any kind of action which does demonstrable harm to people, the burden of proof is on the people to, to say why that should be allowed. And again, that can be contentious. But I think what's quite interesting there is that people think that the burden of proof is often on the people who want to change existing social mores, right? We've been, we've done this for thousands of years, so you've got to prove while it's wrong. If you shift that around, it, it can be quite radical. So, for example, if you think of issues around animal welfare, I mean, sure, for millions of years, animals have been treated like tools. But if you accept as an embattive empirical fact that, you know, animals suffer, Etc., then it seems the burden of proof is switched around to people who, who wish to continue to use animals for human benefit to justify that. And I think that's quite a powerful idea.
2: Yeah, so this is actually, I think it's kind of a, indirectly, I think it's a defense of the method I'm discussing, right? Because the idea is that, so suppose we thought for a long time that a certain theory was a coherent explanation of our practices like a moral theory which sort of it explains why our practices as they exist are legitimate or morally permissible and so on but if we then show that the theory itself is committed to principles that are not consistent for example we are committed to the idea that suffering is bad at the same time we think that our theory allows us to sort of treat animals badly then the burden is on us to explain exactly Of the theory could be coherent or could be made coherent. So this is actually another sort of example of the, of the phenomenon that I was describing. So often the reason why burden shifting techniques at least succeed or seem to succeed is because the person who shifts the burden says, well, my theory gives a coherent explanation of this, but every other alternative that you come up with is incoherent or suffers from internal inconsistencies. So my theory is the only game in town. So I have no burden of actually proving it. But if it turns out that my theory is also incoherent, then I do face a burden of proof for the theory.
0: Well, listen, let's move on to sort of just briefly, last segment, I'll put something on the table myself. I was trying to think of something which might relate to the, the two things you, you've, you've been talking about. There's something I think philosophers are good at, or at least they should be good at. And I'm curious if you perhaps can give me examples of where they haven't been good at this, which is resisting the lure of what you might call cluster thinking. So it seems to me that people often make assumptions about what views go together. And I think that's often disastrous. So, for example, I think that because climate change, the climate change issue became very associated with the liberal left in a lot of Western countries, then right wing parties, you know, just thought it was a liberal left issue rather than just seeing it as an issue, which is about scientific facts and and something we have to do. And I think this kind of clustering of thoughts, assuming that certain thoughts go together, is something that that often hinders our our thinking. Right. And philosophers, I think, in in principle, should be very good at countering that about saying you know well it's often assumed if you believe x you must believe y but actually no you can believe x and not y whatever it might be i i I put that out there and i wonder if you sort of can think yourself of any examples of where philosophers have done that effectively or perhaps where they haven't done and perhaps interesting where the cases whereby the failure to do that has prolonged the debate for decades or centuries before someone actually realized (laughs) that things could be separated
2: well the only examples i can think of are from the history of philosophy because i think partly because people were systematic thinkers in the history of philosophy they developed all their views together so there was a clustering effect of a certain kind where people would not just develop views and Like the theory of knowledge, they would also develop views in the theory of reality to go with those views in the theory of knowledge or in ethics to go with their theory about the reality and knowledge. So I was thinking one kind of clustering of views that we find in Buddhist philosophy, which really fascinates me, is this view that somehow the Buddhist insight, for instance, that there is no substantial self, that really is there and it is distinct from the body uh, and distinct from our transitory mental states, the view is that apparently that is also supposed to support their view that certain kinds of practical attitudes that we have, like anger towards others or future-directed self-concern for our own welfare, the untenability of these practical attitudes are somehow it is supported by the no-self thesis that the Buddhists defend. So the idea is that, well, once we realize that there is no substantial self, we'll give up these other harmful attitudes like anger towards others or our excessive self-interest. And it's not clear to me that there is actually any connection between those two claims. For instance... Like when I am particularly interested in my future welfare, when I'm setting aside a part of my salary to benefit my future self, I am not presupposing any deep metaphysical claim about who I am. So, realizing that the self is not there, or there is no sort of self which is endures through time or which is distinct from the body or the mental states, realizing that there is no such self should not undermine. My desire for my future welfare, as long as there is room within that view for there to be a self in some, some some sort of thinner sense, at least like in the sense of like a series of bodily and mental events. Just to give one example for this is that suppose I really want a table, right? I want a table, but then a philosopher comes along or a physicist comes along and says, well, there is no table. There is on, There are only particles arranged table-wise. That should not undermine my desire for a table because I did not presuppose anything about the nature of the table while making, while forming that desire. So the same. So my thought is that, at least in history of philosophy, certain views seem to go together and I don't know why they go together.
0: Well, I'm I'm totally with you on that. And I mean, even if there's some case that they should go together rationally, I think empirically and psychologically they don't and to be a little bit um, perhaps provocative to certain people I mean in my experience there are a hell of a lot of people who in their minds have established that there's no such thing as the self and etc cetera, etc cetera. Who are extremely egocentric. <laughs> in fact, yeah, the fact that they have discovered that truth is a source of great pride and makes them seem superior to other people who are still living the illusion. So, I think that is certainly the case. Um, Lea, have you got any thoughts on this?
1: That's fantastic. Yeah, you know, I really like the the reference to kind of system building in philosophy, and I think about what I've often thought to myself as a kind of anti-metaphysical turn that underlies both you know 20th century say continental thought and analytic philosophy right this sort of turn against metaphysical speculation you're either going to engage in analysis and argumentation on the one on the one side or sort of ph- phenomenological introspection you know, but you're you're turning away from that kind of metaphysical speculation. But I think another way to say that, and maybe a better way to say that, is you're turning away from philosophical systematizing, right? You're just taking things one piece at a time. This this one argument in front of me is what I'm going to engage, or this one experience, you know, is what I'm going to sort of reflect on phenomenologically. And I'm not going to engage in this larger uh, attempt to sort of make a parallel, right, and start to build out my system and start to have an ethical component and the the ontological component and, and, and all those things. And I do think that that it's interesting because that is a bit of an example of sort of cluster thinking, as, as the way you put it, on the part of, of philosophers. And it does take me back then, right? Because, you know, full disclosure, at the beginning, you said something about the contemplative practices. Can we, can we have them without all the metaphysical baggage? And, you know, I'm fully on board with the metaphysical baggage. Um, <laughs> but I think, I think that the systematizing move, though, does take our attention away from what is the real social value or a real social value of philosophy, which is resisting, like you say, I really, this is a really fascinating, I hadn't heard that term before, cluster thinking. Um, And I, I like that. I like that discussion of it in terms of something that philosophy can offer to public discourse, right? And that's not a kind of a system building move. If anything, it's sort of a move that, that wants to take things apart and ask us to, again to reflect on why do we have a certain inclination to put these things together? Why is that our knee-jerk reaction? And can we question it?
0: Well, but this is interesting because I think that there is a positive thing in the sense that it is true that a lot of beliefs do feed into other beliefs and they form a more or less coherent system. And so, yeah, but where one thing genuinely does follow from another and it genuinely does fit together, it's appropriate that that they should do so. And and thinking through the consequences of a view so that one realises a view on this may have an effect on that is important. I think what I was trying to get at was the idea that often. There are assumed connections which aren't actually there. So, in a way, you know, it's good to be systematic and to see the connections between things. But in a sense, we should be minimally systematic. <laughs> systematic. That's what I'm suggesting. We should only make as many connections as are actually there, and avoid slipping into the trap of of lumping things together. And again, and there's a sort of a much broader point about this. I think you know, you both of you work in in Western philosophy. And I wonder if one of the, uh, one reason why a lot of people have a certain resistance to sort of taking these traditions as, as seriously as they do, is they make certain assumptions about what comes with it, right? They think, you know, if you're going to go into what we call Indian philosophy, well, you know, you've got to buy into, in the Orthodox schools, into sort of certain set of beliefs about the sacredness of, of the ancient Vedas, whatever it might be. So I think that sometimes assumptions about what comes with the journey stops people from even beginning it in that case. I don't know if that's an experience you've had,
2: So, yes, I think students do have that sort of an apprehension when they take, for instance, so I teach a class on the self in classical South Asia. And there we do talk about precisely these debates between the Brahmanical thinkers and the Buddhists. And the Brahmanical thinkers, more or less all of them, they accept the epistemic authority of the Veda when it comes to the nature of reality, as well as practical matters about what we should be doing. But it seems to me that in most of these debates, because their interlocutor is someone who does not share that assumption, the arguments, they don't none of the religious assumptions that they have actually figure as premises in the arguments. So in some ways, the arguments are supposed to stand on their own. In fact, they're supposed to sort of independently confirm the theories, the religious assumptions that they subscribe to. So in that respect, the role of reason there is quite independent of their background religious assumptions. Obviously, it's supposed to help us have confidence in those assumptions, but they're supposed to stand on their own. So in that respect, I find these arguments quite undogmatic and something that is amenable to an independent assessment.
1: Yeah. And I like to think that the situation is changing, you know, in academic philosophy. Honestly, I think it's just a a situation in which previously most people's exposure to any Asian traditions, for example, would have been sort of these very early classics. Um, So it's as if you had been introduced to the European tradition and maybe all you knew was like, I don't know the Hebrew Bible and Plato's dialogues. Like those are the two things you got and you were gonna start sort of, and maybe the odyssey, right? And you're gonna start sort of making, making sort of conjectures about, about Western culture based on those three things. Uh, and I think it's just a lack of familiarity with the long scholarly and intellectual and academic traditions and institutions that have been you know, throughout South and East Asia uh, for all the years, you know, since these very early texts uh, were produced. Uh, it's just a lack of familiarity with that material because when you get into it, much of it looks quite pedantic and just like academic philosophy today.
0: Well, look, um, thanks very much to you both. I mean, you are you're, you're both here partly you now. I, th- I thought of both of you because both both of you um, gave talks in the Royal Institute of Philosophy Lecture Series on Expanding Horizons. Uh, both of those are available online. So if people would like to uh, hear more about Nalanjan's view views on Buddhist arguments about nature of the self and, and Leia's ideas about contemplative practices. They're both online and, and very good, very interesting and very accessible. So thanks for that. We're well into the series now. We've had already uh, four episodes before this. Peter Adamson, Lisa Bortolotti, Rebecca Buxton, Claire Chambers, Patricia Churchland, Owen Flanagan, Tom Kasulis and Lucy O'Brien. They're all conversations that I've enjoyed. So please do you know download those back episodes and have a listen to them. But for now, I'd say thank you so much to Nilandian Das and Leah Carmanson. Fascinating conversation. And so until next time, if nothing prevents, goodbye.